and the series is entitled, Come, Let Us Adore Him, Let Us Worship Him, Let Us Offer Him Our Praise and Our Glory and See Him for Who He Is. Jesus isn't just a little baby in a manger, He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords, He's our Savior, and He deserves our highest praise. So I invite you today to turn to Psalm chapter 8, Psalm chapter 8. I had a discussion recently with someone uh, regarding Advent series and, and different things. There's always these, this discussion, like at your church, are you going to have an Advent series? And so do you understand, uh, yes, we're going to, but the percentage of passages in the Scripture that, peop- that, that come up around Christmas is really small compared to everything else in Scripture. And I don't have the numbers for you. So, uh, but at the same time, it is and it isn't, because the entire Word of God is about Jesus Christ. And so... We're going to look at Psalm chapter 8 today, and in Psalm 8, we're going to turn our hearts to Jesus, our majestic God, and we're going to see how Jesus Christ fulfills what David wrote here in Psalm 8, and how that requires our response to him. Follow along as we read there, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Father, we come to you now with hearts open and ready to receive your word. We thank you for this time we have set aside in such a busy life that many of us lead, that we have set aside just a few minutes even here to open your word, to hear it proclaimed, to ask you to speak to us today. And Lord, we we pray that our hearts would be open and receptive to the work you want to do. Would you turn our eyes to Jesus today? Would you show us the hope of the gospel found in him? And would you show us that he is the Lord of our lives and deserves our highest praise, not just in words only, but in the way we live our lives every day. Would you overwhelm us with the wonder of our Savior? And would you draw us closer to yourself today in your mercy and your grace? We'll give you all the glory and the praise for everything you do in our hearts today. your name we pray. Amen. There is something truly wonderful, and if I can use this word magical even, about seeing Christmas through the eyes of a child. I'm very privileged in my life right now. I I have four young children. You just saw two of them up here a little bit ago, but we also have a two-year-old and a a six-month-old, almost seven-month-old. And this year, uh, I, I, I was reminded of again that every time one of them becomes more aware of their surroundings at Christmas, that I just see that magic just kind of unfold all over again for them. Because, you know, if you had the opportunity to spend time with my third child, Joanna, who's two this year, you would see an experience, I promise you, you would see and experience the wonder of Christmas all over again. 
things that, that you and I have known about for years, like you're going to set up a Christmas tree and you're going to put lights on it. You're going to see, because we live in Michigan, you're going to see the snow. Okay, I'm from Georgia. That's not normally what happens at Christmas where I'm from. But the snow and the gifts and all the other accoutrements that go along with Christmas, those are all new to her because she's old enough this year to appreciate them. And I'm just telling you, I mean, it melts your heart unless you just, you know, are so rock hard and, and you don't, don't get into anything, okay? It just kind of melts your heart to see just how excited she gets, um, yelling out that she wants to see the Christmas tree. And last night we went to see the, the parade and all of these different things, and it's just an amazing thing. And I want you to capture that. Maybe you have, have, have the opportunity, you've been a parent, you're a grandparent, you, you have, you've been around little kids and you've seen that, that wonder that fills their hearts and their lives. Okay, do you have that? Okay, you got that picture? Now, that attitude of wonder and that attitude really then turns into a, that attitude of worship and praise and thanksgiving is what we should be overcome with in the Christmas season. Except... I don't want us to become overcome with those things because we're excited to see Santa Claus, okay? Christmas is more than gifts exchanged by family and friends. It's a celebration of, who, of Jesus who came as our perfect Savior. And so that mentality of wonder and praise and worship drives this whole series of come, let us adore him. I invite you over the next several weeks as we open the scriptures to come and worship God. Come and worship Jesus Christ. Come and see him for who he is. Come and experience him in your life. Come, give your heart and your life to him to live to his worship and praise. And today, we'll open this series with a look at Psalm chapter 8 and see Jesus, our majestic God. This majesty is seen throughout the psalm in a general call that that encompasses the whole of man. It it is seen, David points us to, the creation of mankind and the charge of dominion that God gave to man over his creation. And then we're going to see how Jesus perfectly fulfilled all of these things while he was here on earth and how he is due all glory as God. And what we see in this passage is that the majesty of Jesus as eternal God is unrivaled by anyone or anything else. And that's what I want you to walk away with today. That's what David in the psalm writes about. He writes about God, and Jesus is God, and Jesus fulfills these things when he came to earth. So let's look at Psalm chapter 8 today and see Jesus, our majestic God. And as you open Psalm chapter 8, in these first couple of verses, you see That there is glory to be offered to God from all. Glory to God from all. And we see in verse 1, God's transcendent glory above everyone else. David says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Now David was the greatest king, the greatest human king that Israel ever had. He was described as a man after God's own heart. And he was also called the sweet psalmist of Israel. And many of the psalms that you have before you in the, in the book of Psalms were written by David. And here he records for us a wonderful psalm of praise to God. And it reflects on the glory of God that's seen in God's creation. See, here's the thing. If you want to see the glory of God, 
If you want to experience what the glory of God is or what it looks like, all you have to do is look around and see the creation. This psalm gives glory to the great and awesome God of all who gives his attention to the frail children of dust that we are. This psalm finds fulfillment, as we said, in Jesus Christ, and we'll make those connections as we go through. This psalm perfectly sets up our hearts, then, to come and adore Jesus this Advent season. So let us join with David, praising our Lord. Notice how he exalts God in the very first verse here, and he'll repeat it at the end. We'll see that in a little bit. He exalts God as, O Lord, our Lord. It's interesting. These are two different words that David uses here. You have them as the same word, but you'll notice probably in your text, there's a little bit of difference. You notice that first Lord, how it has all capital letters. So, so that's a reference to God's special name that he gave for his people to call him by. That name is Yahweh, the I Am. So David declares, first of all, to whom his and our praise should be directed, it is to be given to the one true God. That name, Yahweh, emphasizes God's self-existence. The only one who deserves our undying praise is the Most High God. God is majestic alone because he is self-existent alone. So David first says, who who is he addressing this praise to? Uh, The the Lord, God, above all, Yahweh, the self-existent one. And then he goes on, O Lord, our Lord. He's emphasizing not just who God is, but but who he is, who he should be to his people. He is our Lord. That second word that you have translated Lord is a title emphasizing God's sovereignty over everyone and everything. He is the self-existent God who possesses all-encompassing authority. You see, God isn't some type of tribal God. He isn't some dreamed-up idea or token deity. No, he is the sovereign over all men, whether they recognize him or not. And that's the thing. You can go through life never giving recognition to God. You can go through life meeting people who want nothing to do with God. But my friend, that doesn't change the facts that God is sovereign over all. He is Lord of all. David has claimed him as his Lord. And so therefore, David proclaims his name as excellent, or another word is majestic in all the earth. Throughout the whole of creation, the name of the Lord is to be proclaimed. We see in the Old Testament that God revealed himself to and through the chosen nation of Israel. But that revelation didn't just stop there. It continued outward to all the nations. And the whole of who God is is represented in what David says here. He says, how excellent is your name in all the earth. When David says your name, he's talking about all that God is to be proclaimed to all lands and nations and peoples. See, here's the thing. God has not left us here to wonder if he exists. No, God has revealed himself to us. He has shown himself in our creation. He shows himself through his word. His Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts to show us our sin and to show us our need for him. And he has entrusted his followers to exalt his name forever as well. 
If you are here today and you are a follower of God, you have a relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, then your life is to be a life that reflects the glory of God to other people. That is the call of your life, to give glory to God in what you say, in what you do, in what you, what you, how you carry on the business of your life is to be in worship and praise to him, to tell others about him. But whether people will acknowledge him or not, whether he'll be proclaimed or not, at the end of the day, the glory of God will be revealed because it says at the end of verse 1, who have set your glory above the heavens. The purpose of God in everything he does is to glorify himself. Now, you and I, from a human understanding and in our sinfulness, we might be tempted to look at that and say, well, that seems rather selfish. But see, that's the thing. That's the difference between you and me and God. See, you and I are sinful. We do things for our glory and honor. That's sin, right? God is holy. He is the only one who can do that. He's the only one who deserves that. That everything he does brings him honor and glory. And God's glory is far and above, uh, far and away above this universe. He has set it above all else. He is superior to anything we can imagine. He is grander than anything that you and I have seen or experienced in our lives. And yet, God is so amazing. He's so glorious. He is so far and above away anything we've ever experienced. And yet, he has revealed himself to us in ways we can understand. You ever stopped and thought about that? How amazing and how infinite God is. And yet, he chooses to relate to us finite sinful people. He chooses in love to share with us who he is. We can observe the glory of God in the world we live in. Though it is scarred by sin, the creation praises her creator. Though imperfect, mankind still is given the opportunity through God's grace to give glory to his maker. We see it in his word. Revealed over and over and over again who God is and who we are and how we relate to him. And we see that the glory of God is greater than any enemy of God. We see not only is God's glory transcendent, but we see that God's glory in verse 2 is triumphant. Because because David writes, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength. Because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. God's glory is transcendent, it is above all, yet it is also imminent. It is all around us and offered up even through us because God is in all places and at all times and he is fully there. So therefore, he is praised by even the weakest things of our world and we see that that glory when it is offered and that praise when it is offered is triumphant. It triumphs over his enemies. Think of this picture That David has just given us out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. An infant or a nursing baby in and of itself has no innate strength of its own. A nursing baby especially has no ability to survive on her own. 
Instead, these, these small children and, and, and babies must be cared for, looked after, and carefully watched. I, I sometimes joke that, that my wife and I, with these young kids, are in what we call survival parenting mode. And that is, we're just trying to help our kids survive long enough that they can take care of themselves, right? Yet, even these little ones give praise to the Creator. All life is precious to God. And when that little, that little baby cries out, she gives glory to the God who made her, even if it's at 3 o'clock in the morning. She is giving praise to God. She's doing what God created her to do. No matter what age, each person is made in the image of God. And whether born or in the womb, each life is precious to God. And these serve God's purpose. And what is God's purpose as stated in the psalm? That out of these, the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained what? You have ordained strength. The purpose of these is to confound the strong self-wise and sinful things of this world with the weakest of all. I, I think of this passage that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus. Who became for us wisdom from God. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written he who glories let him glory in the Lord. See here's the thing. All glory belongs to God alone. His glory will be exalted above all else. And he will use the weakest things of this world to sound forth that triumphant glory. This psalm's phrase would find its fulfillment in Jesus. I would encourage you even to mark here in your Bible in Psalm chapter 8, right, right there next to verse 2, Matthew 21, verses 14 through 16. Because in Matthew 21, when Jesus cleansed the temple a second time, look what he said in Matthew 21, verses 14 through 16. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the king of David, they were indignant. Okay, get the picture. Jesus has, has cleansed the temple. He's cast out those who have made a mockery of his father's house. And now the children are coming into the temple. They're praising Jesus. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David, which is part of the prophecy that Jesus would, be, that would come from the line of David and reign on, eventually will reign on David's throne. And now they're indignant. And look what Jesus says and said to them. Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. He's quoting Psalm 8, verse 2. And you know what he's doing when he says that? I am God. 
There is no mistake there. You don't read, I am God, but trust me, it's there. That Jesus says, this is who the glory and the praise belongs to. He asserts that he has due all the rights of worship due to God alone because Jesus is the sovereign God. Jesus is the creator. And so Jesus is due all glory and honor and praise because he is God incarnate, the second member of the Trinity. And quite literally in his life, the weakest things of the world confounded the self-sufficient mighty men of Israel's religious hierarchy. Here are these religious leaders of Israel Mumbling and grumbling, they are confounded by these little kids giving praise to Jesus Christ as God. The unclean, the sick, the outcasts of Israel, what did they find time after again? Healing and salvation in Jesus. The little children came to him and proclaimed his glory to others. And then Jesus used these 12 ordinary men in extraordinary ways in his disciples. These men that that Jesus called to, to follow him were definitely weak compared to others in their training, in their personality, in their actions. Yet God's grace shone greatly through their lives. And as, the, as Luke would, would state it in Acts, they turned the world upside down. And they showed his glory. Look to the children. Look to the, to the outcasts that, that proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ. Look to the disciples and then look to yourself. You and I are broken. We're weak. We're sinful. We need a Savior. And Jesus Christ came to redeem us to himself that we can proclaim his glory. What an amazing thing that is. Our hearts and lives can overflow with glory given rightly to God. As a follower of Christ, that is what we are called to do. It is glory seen in who God is. But secondly today, we see that there is glory then offered to God in man's creation. This is in verses 3 through 5. And what we see, first of all, is the magnitude of God. We see the magnitude of God where David writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? David continues his praise by by pointing us to the magnitude of God over creation. And here's the thing, when, when we see things as they really are, it should overwhelm us with who God is. David considers the works of the universe. Now, what did David do before he was the king of Israel? He grew up and he was a a shepherd. You know where shepherds spend a lot of time? Out in the field. And you know what I think David saw a lot of in his life? A lot of stars. And sheep, but stars. The moon and the stars David mentioned specifically here. When you gaze up into the sky and observe the stars from our perspective, it is incredible to think how amazing it is even that we can see these things. I looked it up this week. Researchers tell us that the closest star outside of the sun, the closest of these stars in the night sky that we observe, is still over 24 trillion miles away. But that's a long ways. 
Most distances of these celestial bodies aren't even calculated in physical miles. We calculate them in in light years. How long would it take for light to to get there at the speed it travels? Now, I want you to to get that picture, how how amazing, how, how big and great that is. And look what David calls it. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. Now, God is, is spirit, right? So what David is doing here is anthropomorphizing God to help us understand how big God really is. Because when you think of, when you and I think of the work of fingers, what do you think of? You think of something that's, that's small, right? That's, that's easily handled. So if you'll pardon my illustration, you, you guys, under, some of you know that, that one of the things, one of the hobbies I do is I like to build these little Lego sets. I brought one with me today. Okay, so this is, yeah, okay, it's the only Mustang I own. Um, I really enjoy putting these things together, but if you come to my office and you see those or you come by the house or you, you look at it, you don't look at this. I could tell you it took six to eight hours to build this. But you don't look at it and say, well, where's your permit or where's your license or anything like that? Why? Because this really is the work of my fingers. It's just fingers, right? It's just little tiles and pieces that all, now they go together and they make this really cool thing, right? But at the end of the day, it's just the work, it's just the work of someone's hands, fingers. Take that picture. That's what this expansive, massive universe is to God. That is just the work of his fingers. That is just the work of, of, of the creator putting these things in place. The placement of stars light years away, the orbiting of the moon around the earth or moons around other planets, the rotation of those planets, all of it is nothing more than the work of God's fingers. He is so much greater than the greatest things that you and I can imagine. And yet, how has man's view of God evolved over the years? As God has allowed us to advance in technology and incredible achievements, mankind has continued to press that there is no creator. The ever-increasing knowledge of things like our solar system and what lies light years beyond us that we can't even see should drive us to see how insignificant our little planet is in comparison to all of it. But yet it's had the opposite effect. Instead, we become full of ourselves and full of our theories. And we say, what is God? Instead of with David, what is man? Charles Spurgeon said, the carnal mind sees God in nothing. Not even in spiritual things, his word and ordinances. But David is overwhelmed by God's magnitude. He is overcome with emotion that God would even think on us. And yet, God does think on us. He has given us great meaning. We see not only here the magnitude of God, but we see the meaning of man. David says, for you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. God gives great significance to man in man's creation. Because of all the creation... 
Mankind was the only one whom God personally formed. He is the only one who received a soul. He is the only one who is capable of a relationship with God. God's care for man is unrivaled. I'm just going to tell you something. Mankind, all of mankind has value simply because of this fact, because you are created in the image of God. David here states what man is, and it is likely even greater than the text you have in front of you. Many of, many of your translations contain this phrase, you have made him a little lower than the angels. It's really interesting when you dig into the Hebrew behind that, that it, it really probably is better said that the word there is Elohim. Do you recognize, you ever heard the word Elohim in scripture? It's used well over 2,000 times in the Old Testament. And most of those times, actually over 2,000 of those times, it refers to God. And many scholars believe that here, the better translation is you have made him a little lower than God. Man is God's representative here on this earth. And as such... He is crowned with glory and honor by God himself over the creation. Now again, here is an interesting thing. As as our theories, as mankind's theories have evolved over the years, where does man get his value? Where does man get his glory? Well, they say, Man is, 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 is better or man is, is greater because he's a little higher than the, the animals, right? The animal kingdom. He's, he's a little bit more evolved than, than, than whatever, you know, pick an animal, right? You know where we get our value? We're valuable because we are a little lower than God, our personal creator. God didn't say, hey, you have value because you're just a step up from a monkey. He said, no, you have value because you're created in my image. You have value because because you're not God, but you are a little lower than God. So we should then give him back the praise and adoration that he is due. But the glory of God seen in man's creation doesn't stop here. It is also seen in the role that God gave him to play on the earth. We see the glory of God and man's dominion over the earth. David continues in verse 6, You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. We see the rule of man here. That God's plan for mankind from the beginning was that he would rule. See, God created a perfect, wonderful world for mankind to exercise dominion over in perfect communion with his God. That was God's plan from the beginning. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And in the Garden of Eden, this dominion was perfectly carried out by Adam and Eve. But one day, everything changed. Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God, brought sin into the world, and the world was changed forever. Not only was mankind affected 
but the whole of creation was affected. Now, the ground would fight back when men worked it. Now, enmity between man and beast would exist. Now, sin would rule man's hearts and hinder his relationship to his creator. Now, man would still have dominion, but it would be a hard-fought, imperfect dominion in an imperfect world. And this is, again, where Jesus enters the scene. Because even from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15... Jesus is the promised deliverer in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is the promised one to Abraham through whom all nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the promised king to reign on David's throne. He is the promised Messiah seen throughout the Old Testament. And he came, that we celebrate at Christmas, that he came born as a human, God in flesh. And he came to complete the work of man's salvation. And the question has been asked and is rightly asked, and perhaps you've wrestled with it in your own heart, that if God knows all things because he's sovereign, then why even create man in the first place if you know he's going to sin? My friends, that is a love beyond degree that you and I cannot fathom. Would you do such a thing? Probably not. I know I wouldn't. I'd be first in line to say, yep, nope, that's not a good idea. But that's why we're not God. And that infinite love of God should lead us to resounding praise. And as the second Adam, the one who came to break the curse of sin, we see in this passage We see that this passage before us was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27. For he has put all things under his feet. Notice that phrase. It comes from Psalm 8. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. He's talking about Jesus Christ and how God has put everything under the feet of Jesus Christ. And then... Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. But the big one comes in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For he has not put the world, for, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man? You are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. See, Jesus came to fulfill what was written in this psalm. Where man failed, Jesus has succeeded. He came to earth in human form, 100% God and 100% man. He lived a perfect life, gave that life willingly for us, and has risen again to offer us eternal life. And all things are subjected unto him, the King of kings. And do you know 
What was subjected unto him, finally, that none of us can subject, is death itself. He wrested victory from the grave to offer us eternal life. Jesus is the hope of mankind. Jesus is worthy of our praise and worship. He has defeated death itself to offer us life, and this is what we celebrate this season. This is Jesus, our majestic God, who has done wonderful things for us. And so let us, with the psalmist, sing the repeated refrain, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. David closes this psalm with this, with this refrain from the beginning. That when we, and when we consider all that we have just read and seen fulfilled in Jesus Christ, how can we not but sing the same? May the self-existent Lord of all be your Lord today. Live each day in light of God's praise. Live each day to the glory of our sovereign Lord. Jesus is the majestic God. And whether you acknowledge him or not, that truth is settled for all of eternity. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All will bow before Jesus. If you do so in this life, you will find new and eternal life in him if you confess him as your Savior and Lord. If you reject him in this life, you will have no choice but to acknowledge him in the next as you spend eternity separated from him in punishment for your sin. And as we enter this Christmas season, may we enter it with this mindset. Let us enter it with this proclamation. Come, let us adore him. And let us see today that the majesty of Jesus as eternal God is unrivaled by anyone or anything else. Jesus Christ is God the Son. He is God himself. And as such, he is due all the honor, praise, and glory of God. David's psalm of God's majesty was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. His praises and deity were sung by the weakest of all humans, and his might was revealed in his victory over sin and death. So come, let us adore him. He is your creator, and he lived and died on this earth to be your savior. Will you trust your eternity to the savior of the world? He is worthy of your trust and will transform your life in himself. I can think of no better way to start the Christmas season than to come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior if you don't already. And I would invite you today that if, if you're not sure where you would spend eternity, to have those questions answered, to settle that with the truth of God's Word. And Christians, our lives should be one of adoration to our Lord. 
Jesus calls you and me to be his disciple. He calls you to new life in himself that is filled with victory over sin. And so very simply ask yourself this question. Do I live a life full of praise to the King of Kings? The mission of a child of God is to live a life of full surrender and glory to God alone. And, and perhaps we're very quick to say, well, yeah, I do that. But there are areas of our life that we continue to protect. There are areas of our lives that we continue to, to hold on to, to refuse to give to God because, well, that's not the way I've done it. And I just don't do that. Or I just don't think God meant full surrender, full commitment. That's what a disciple is. In Christ, you and I can live out this adoration. In Christ, your life can pour out praise to him and resound to others around you. So let us enter this season and live our lives with celebration for who Jesus is and what he's done. Father, we thank you for the proclamation of who Jesus is that we've read here today. Lord, we thank you that beyond a shadow of a doubt, we know Jesus Christ is King of Kings. We thank you that he came to be our Savior. And Lord, we ask that you would do your work in our hearts today. Would you have free reign to convict us of our sin? Would you push away the excuses Would you push away this mentality of just giving a half-hearted effort for you? This apathetic thing that we carry in our lives. And would you burn within us a desire to live all out for you? Would you help us to see, God, that, that living a life consumed by the glory of God isn't for the spiritually elite, it's for all disciples. And would you mold us and make us willing to engage in such things? We ask today, Lord, that you would do this work in our hearts. Watch over us and protect us as we drive home today and bring us back to worship you tonight. May we say it's truly been wonderful to be in your house today because of what you have done. In your name we pray. Amen.